I'm blessed to have uh, Richard as a good friend. Thank you, Richard. We're going to look today, as you uh, may see uh, in your uh, bulletin, uh, Psalm 39. It's the Psalm of David, King David. We uh, know that David's reason, reason for writing this uh, psalm has something to do with his suffering. We're about ready to read that in verse 2. He says he's in distress, and he knows that it's growing. We also note what I'm about to read in verse 12 that he has said that his suffering has brought him to tears. It's significant suffering. So some scholars think that Psalm 38, the previous psalm, and Psalm 39, which we're looking at today, are related, and that Psalm 38 gives perhaps a reason that explains his suffering that he talks about in Psalm 39. Let me read verse 12 from Psalm 38, which says, Those who seek my life lay their snares, and those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. That may be what he's suffering from. He's fearful that his life will be taken from him by his enemies. But we don't know for sure. But we can say, as we previously said, that it's a suffering that's growing worse. It brings him to tears. He's a suffering man. So we're going to look today at the prayers of a suffering man from Psalm 39. The first three verses is the preface to the rest of the psalm. And then the rest of the psalm is divided into two parts in verses 4 through 6. David's prayer for perspective and then verses 7 to the end, David's prayer for relief. Let me read Psalm 39. If you have your Bible, you can turn there with me. I think it's going to be behind me. Yeah, there it is. David begins, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin... You consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. 
Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest, like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. This is God's word. Join your hearts with me as I lead us in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, Father, for the honesty in this psalm of David's heart. Lord, I thank you that we can identify with the pain and suffering that he's going through, maybe not in the exact same way. Maybe we haven't experienced what he experienced, but all humanity in some way suffers. So, Lord, would you teach us the lessons David gives us and how to deal with our own suffering, whether it be big or whether it be small, that we would learn to deal with it in a way that honors you, that glorifies you, that brings health to our soul, and that, Father, is a testimony of the grace and power of God at work in our lives. So, Lord, now would you take the anxieties and the concerns of last week, maybe the anxieties and concerns of the upcoming week, would we be able to lay them aside? And now, Lord, would you have our hearts? Teach us now your ways in your name. Amen. Well, first of all, then, in the first three verses, let's talk about the preface here that we receive here in this psalm, that the preface of the psalm expresses David's battle to take his cries of suffering that he's experiencing to take them to the Lord and not to his unbelieving neighbor. So in verse 1 again, he said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. So in verse 3, he describes this distress that he has like a fire. It's like an active volcano about ready to erupt. And he resists the temptation of bringing his suffering and complaint to his neighbor. He doesn't want to do that with his unbelieving neighbor. Instead, he brings his complaint to God himself. That's where he takes his complaint. Because when we bring our complaints of suffering to our unbelieving neighbors, we imply to them that God is not dependable and that he can't be trusted. That's what they hear. But when we bring our complaints to God himself, we're saying to God that you are trustworthy and that I can depend upon you. That should be the heart of the sufferer. We bring that kind of prayer to him. Prayer, as you maybe heard me say before in previous Sundays, that prayer is the language of dependence. Prayer is the language of dependence. He who prays little depends much upon themselves. And he who prays much depends much upon God. So David learned and was bringing his prayers to the Lord regarding his suffering. So let's look then at these two points that he talks about. First of all, in verses 4 through 6, we want to look at David's prayer for perspective. So he begins that prayer for perspective in verse 4. He says this, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days 
let me know how fleeting I am. So with that prayer, here's how God answers David's prayer. Here's what he reveals to him. Look at verse 5. It's revealed to David that you have made my days a few hand breadths. This is a linear term. It's the different distance between your four fingers. Life is this long. So compared to great distances, like how about the distance between New York and San Francisco, this is what our life is like. It's a hand breadth. He also says in verses 5 and 11 that all mankind stands as a mere breath. That's how long life is. It's a weather term that describes breathing out into the cold winter air as long as that vapor is manifested as long as our life is. It is short. And then in verse 6, he says, man goes about as a shadow. It's not a reality. The reality is much greater than life itself. It is just a shadow. It's an image of ultimate reality. It is not the ultimate reality. So, in light of God's answer to David's prayers, he concludes this in verse 5. Look there. My lifetime is as nothing before you. Now, David is not saying, I mean nothing to you, or I have no value to you, but he's saying, compared to you, O eternal God, I, this temporal man, am as nothing. How do you compare a temporal being to an eternal God? There is no comparison. That's what he's saying. Peter says something similar that tells us about how he views uh, his unimportance compared to God. And uh, we read First Peter, Second Peter 3.8. He writes, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So a thousand years to us, in God's eternal perspective, it's one day to him. That's an amazingly, in our perspective, long day. But to him, it's just a day. So David talks about kind of the response of people in general to the brevity of life. How do people generally respond? Look at verse 6. He says, surely for nothing... Mankind is in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. So he's saying that life is a turmoil, which means to roar. It means to be in commotion. It means to be turbulent. Isn't that, I find, in our own language today, how we describe some people? You ever say about someone, just stop roaring around, will you? Ever say that to somebody? Or they, you would make an observation of someone doing something and how they live life, and you say, they just roar around all the time. I mean, I've, I've used that phrase before. David's saying the same thing, that people just roar around. And what are they doing by roaring around? Well, he says they do it to heap up wealth. They roar around in this short life and because it's so brief, they are in total commotion to make a lot of money and to gain a lot of things. Jesus talks about that, doesn't he, in his gospel, Matthew's gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, 
mankind lives storing up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So that's one response. That's David's perspective, how people live in light of the brevity of their lives. They roar around to store up wealth. That summarizes their entire existence. Richard Swenson, in his book Margin, that's been out for some time, is very apropos to our culture today, points out the cost of progress and the loss of margin in our modern society. Listen to what he says. He says, margin has been stolen away, and progress was the thief. Our relationships are being starved to death by velocity. No one has the time to listen, let alone to love. Our children lay wounded on the ground, run over by our high-speed good intentions. Is God now pro-exhaustion? Doesn't he leave people beside the still waters anymore? That's, that's turmoil. That's roaring around. That's what David says some people do in this brevity of life. So we read in talking about this life that is just a breath. Two times he mentions life is a breath, verses 5 and 11. Notice what he has after each of those two verses. It is the word selah. He says mere breath, and then he writes selah. Now, scholars aren't exactly sure what this word means, but here's what they suppose. That it's a musical term, and it means that after this psalm is sung at that particular point in the psalm, they are to stop. And there's to be a musical interlude with no singing before the singing resumes. They are to stop. Why? They're to think about what they just sung. Think about what you've just sung. And we're not going to go forward until you do. Selah, stop. Think about this. So after he talks about life as a mere breath, God says in this psalm through David, stop, think about that. Life is a breath. Now, we might know when Paul writes to the church in Philippi in the New Testament that he talks about what we are to do with the roaring around, the anxieties of our life on this earth. So Philippians 4, 6 talks about we're to do what with our anxieties? We're to bring every anxiety to the Lord in prayer. Every anxiety to the Lord in prayer. It's a fairly well-known passage of Scripture. But Tim Keller, in his book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, wants us to think about the next verse. This is the next verse. This is verse 8. He says, Finally, brethren, Paul writes, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. A lot of people would say those things that he writes about is referring to specifically the Word of God. It describes God's Word in different ways. We are to think about 
those things. Here's what Tim Keller has written about what that means. He writes, see what Paul's doing? He is saying that if you're a Christian today and you have little peace, it may be because you are not thinking. Peace comes from a disciplined thinking out the implications of what you believe. Think big and high. Realize who God is and what he has done. You are in Christ. Put your troubles in perspective by remembering Christ's troubles on your behalf. And then Keller goes on to talk about what he calls dumb peace and smart peace, or rather stupid peace and smart peace. Here's what he says stupid peace is. He says stupid peace is a peace pursued by not thinking at all or by thinking about your overall situation from your own limited perspective. So you can guess what smart peace is. Smart peace is a peace pursued by thinking outside the box of your own limited perspective and instead thinking thoughts after God's broad eternal perspective. Stupid peace and smart peace. We need to think well if we're going to experience God's peace, if we will be relieved of our anxieties. If we won't live in turmoil, we need to think well. Let me give an example of my own life, maybe before I've shared this with this congregation. I've been here several times. So you might, you're gonna, might get a rerun here, but I'll tell you this little story about me, of my stupid piece and smart piece. Uh, it has to do with the fact uh, that I've been a heart patient for over 30 years. When I was in my last semester of seminary, I was experiencing pain during exercise, but didn't know what was going on and ignored it too long. Uh, but finally went to the doctor and he says, well, Mr. Darnell, you've got two blocked arteries. Uh, we think we can open them with an angioplasty, a balloon. So that's, that's what we would suggest you do. I agreed, uh, and they did. Uh, and then five weeks later, one of those two same arteries re-blocked. I had to have a third angioplasty and had that done before I graduated from seminary. Okay, now 10 years later, I'm exercising again. I'm now 50 and I experienced the same symptoms I did back when I was 40. I didn't have a heart attack, but I had symptoms. So I knew what to do, immediately came back to the house, said, Cheryl, you need to take me to the ER right now. So she takes me, uh, the ER in Williamsburg, Virginia, where I was pastoring, and they transferred me to a neighboring bigger heart hospital in Newport News, Virginia, and they said, Mr. Darnell, after they tested me, they said, you have two blocked arteries. They weren't the same ones as before, he says, they're so blocked, we, we can't do an angioplasty. You have to have open-heart surgery. So, I said, praise the Lord, let's go. Uh, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> I thought, are you kidding me? What? So, they were going to perform this the next day. So, I was in my hospital bed now from that time forward through the night. And for my own soul, it was getting darker and darker and darker. <laughs> My wife is very open uh, about a diagnosis of her being having a, de of a depressive disorder. She has several others, but she's very open about that. Fr frankly, 
it's very obvious that medication solves that today, but I've been with her many times during depressive episodes, and she'll describe that uh, when she was going through those as kind of falling into a deep, dark abyss, spiraling down into darkness. That's what I was experiencing in the hospital that night. I'd never experienced it before. It was dark, and I was spiraling, and I was thinking, what happens if I don't get off the table without dying? What happens if I code on the table and I die? I don't see who my children are going to marry. I'll never know my grandchildren. Who's going to take care of my wife? What's going to happen to my family? And what am I going to miss if I die tomorrow when they do the surgery? Now the Lord, that stupid piece, the Lord began to bring smart peace to my heart, reminding me of some scripture, reminding me of his word, thinking about his word. And he brought this passage to mind, Psalm 139, verse 6. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God designed me from all eternity. And in that design, he determined my beginning and my end. And God was saying, Tom, I've already determined your end. And I'm not changing my math. I will take you home when it's time to go home. It may be hard in your family, but it's the right time. So don't fret about these things. I'm Lord. I'm in charge. Don't try to be God. I'll be God. I know your end. Be at peace. You will go home to be with me at the exact right time. And light came. A great light came to my soul. And the burden was completely, totally lifted. And it is today. I'm still a heart patient. So I don't know whether it's going to be by heart disease that I die or some other way. But God knows. He's Lord. He's in charge. He's numbered my days. He has relieved me from the turmoil of my soul. The second thing we want to look at is the cry for help. The cry for help in verses 7 through 13. So in 4 through 6, David struggles with the brevity of life. In verses 7 through 13, David struggles uh, with, as James Boyce says, God's heavy-handed treatment of so insubstantial creature as man. <laughs> so look at verse 10. He says, remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. Verse 13, look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. So although he's struggling with the heavy-handedness of God on him as a human being, he has not lost hope. Look at verse 7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. He's not lost hope in this good God. So even though David's suffering is growing, it's a growing distress, it's getting worse, it brings him to tears. He requests that God would remove his hand from him, yet in it all, he clings to God's good purposes for him. He clings to that hope. The writer of Hebrews 12 tells us the reasons why sometimes we do suffer. It talks about the discipline of the Lord Listen to verses 5 and 6 of Hebrews 12. 
My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. The suffering that we experience at the hand of God always has at God's end the good he has for us and it always comes from God's love for us. Always comes from God's love for us. Because God, through what we are going through, desires to bring to an end that which he purposes for all of us. And at that time in life, when we experience such things, here's the way we need to think of God. God is much more like a surgeon than a fireman. A fireman tries to come to a fire that started and is out of control maybe, and they're just in a panic, and they're trying to get things corrected. It's a mess, and they're trying to get everything in the right way, and they're just working really hard to help with the fire. A surgeon plans a surgery to do something that's going to promote my health or your health, this has to be done. You're going to have to go through this pain and this recovery if in the end you're going to be a healthier man or woman, boy or girl. This surgery must be done. That's what God is like. He's a surgeon. He knows at times when he has to put the knife to a problem that we have, that's the only way this is going to be excised from our soul. That's what God does. So proper views of God uh, in relation to our suffering yields the fruit or can yield the fruit of wisdom or it can yield the fruit of foolishness. Ephesians 5 talks about both those things. Ephesians 5 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, but be, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So walk in wisdom, not in foolishness, knowing that God has given you his Spirit to walk with you. Be inebriated with the Spirit of God. Be under his total control, and he will lead you into wisdom. So the walk, the natural path of that kind of walk, the path of foolishness is a path that I, you, decide how we're to live in a painful world. I'll make that decision. So foolishness can lead, there's a lot of things it can lead to, I listed three. Foolishness can lead some of us to addictions. That we play the liberated one. I can do whatever I want. Well, that's not liberty, that's enslavement to liberty. Because liberty is the freedom to do not what is harmful to you. But many think that that is total freedom to do whatever you want, no matter the cost. That is, in fact, foolishness. It's an addiction. We ought not to live that way. Secondly, foolishness leads some to bitterness. That we play the victim. That I'm a victim. And I'm angry about this. I am embittered in my soul. And I do not like this. Addictions, bitterness, or third, foolishness leads some to fatalism. We play the cynic. Ah, oh, life, life is just a mess, and everything's always going to go wrong for me. Everything always goes wrong. 
nothing, nothing matters. I don't matter. On and on and on. It's great fun to be a cynic, isn't it? Or we can walk the supernatural path of wisdom, which is letting God decide how we live in a painful world. Psalm 90, a psalm of Moses, is a lot like Psalm 39 in this particular verse, which Moses writes, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So how do we get a heart of wisdom? Just two simple things. First of all, we all need to embrace God's ultimate goal for every child of God. What is God's ultimate goal for every child of God? We can read this in 2 Corinthians 3, which says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. God's purpose for us, for the children of God, is always to conform us into the image of Christ. To conform us into Christ's image is God's ultimate goal. He does all in us to accomplish that end. Always. We can at least say that. So we embrace the ultimate goal, but we should embrace God's comprehensive means. How are we to live like that? What will help us embrace that goal? Well, it's pretty simple. We find it in 1 Corinthians 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What God is saying in this short life, everything counts. Everything counts. I do everything to the glory of God. Even eating and drinking, I do it to all of God's glory. I do it to his glory. I do it to manifest him, to honor him, to praise him, to show in my own heart my love for him. We glorify God in everything. And we do it all anticipating a greater glory to come. We look forward to this day when sin is no more, when tears are no more, when crying is no more. There is a day that will come that will bring us all those things. I look forward to that day when I will be in the presence of this glorious God and I will see that glory unobstructed. That's the day I look forward to. Matthew Henry, a late 17th, uh, an 18th century Puritan pastor wrote this. He says, To the wicked man, death is the end of all joys. To a godly man, it is the end of all griefs. That's the day we look forward to. Now, just in closing, I want to say this. The, the greatness of Christ to all of us is inverse proportion to how honestly we dive into the depths of our pain. Here, let me explain this. If you want to have a big Jesus in your life, you need to dive deep into your pain. Not deny your pain, but to admit and look at your pain. Because if you don't know the depth of the pain you really have, you won't know Jesus, you won't need him to come to you and to aid and minister to you. You understand what I'm saying? If you ignore your pain and act like it's not there and deny it, and it's only a little bit of a dive, you'll know a little Jesus because you don't need him very much. You've stuffed it. Dear brothers and sisters, that is not healthy. 
it is not spiritual. If we want to know a big Jesus, then bring to him the depths of your pain, as David has done here in his prayer. Bring those to him so he can be a big Jesus to you. Let me pray. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of knowing you, walking with you, and serving you. We thank you for your sovereign grace at work in our lives that lead us and guide us. And now, Lord, we look forward to the privilege of coming to this table to experience the truth of your love for us. So, Lord, guide us now, minister to us now, as we come to this, the Lord's table. In Christ's name, amen. It is wonderful, in light of what we read in Psalm 39, to come to the Lord's table, the one who suffered for us, so that he, in his might and power and love and mercy, can come to us as suffering people and minister to us. To remind us that he suffered to take upon himself our own sin and to suffer the consequences of that sin to pay the price we could never pay and remind us that he comes as a suffering servant to serve us in our suffering that he might become huge in our lives as we bring our suffering to him this table is not this church's table it's not our denominational table it's the table of God's people so if you are an individual who has placed your trust in Christ as Savior and Lord, and you've expressed that trust by your commitment and membership in a church, and you're a baptized member there, you're invited to partake of this table. If you are someone who has not yet come to Christ as your Savior and Lord, that's the first step you should take. There's nothing magical about these elements. But these elements encourage anyone who has not yet taken that step to come to Christ to do that first. And then, at a different time, come to the table as someone now you know is your Lord and Savior. It's always good to remind ourselves what Jesus and the Scriptures teach about this table. And here's what we hear in the Scriptures. That we remember the Lord Jesus when the night in which he's betrayed took bread. And when he broke it, he gave us the disciples and says, this is the covenant of my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took the wine and said, this wine is a covenant of the new covenant of my blood for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Feed on him with your hearts with great thanksgiving and rejoice that his blood was shed for you. If 